Our first reading comes from Acts chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost had come, the disciples were all together in one place, and suddenly from heaven there came a sound like the rush of a violent wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Divided tongues, as of fire, appeared among them, and a tongue rested on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them ability. Now there were devout Jews from every nation under heaven living in Jerusalem, and at this sound the crowd gathered and was bewildered, because each one heard them speaking in the native language of each. Amazed and astonished, they asked, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear, each of us, in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. In our own languages, we hear them speaking about God's deeds of power. All were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others sneered and said, They are filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, raised his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and listen to what I say. Indeed, these are not drunk, as you suppose, for it is only nine o'clock in the morning. No, this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. In the last days it will be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even upon my slaves, both men and women, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show portents in the heaven above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and smoky mist. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the Lord's great and glorious day. Then everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Here ends the reading. The Holy Gospel, according to St. John, the 20th chapter. When it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and the doors of the house where the disciples had met were locked for fear of the Judeans, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. When he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. This is the Gospel of our Lord. Grace and peace to you, sisters and brothers in Christ, and happy birthday! Well, maybe not your birthday. It's probably not your birthday. But Pentecost has been called the birthday of the church, and if that is the case, then I suppose today is kind of like our shared birthday. The day the church began, at least the church as we might understand it. See, it is kind of a silly idea, silly enough that I know some preachers actually really don't like that, that some of us might call it the birthday of the church. But I do think there's 
something helpful about that idea, that metaphor that the church was born. Specifically, that whether you like the idea or not, it calls us to think about and maybe even take a stance on what is the church? We can't say when it started unless we first say what it is that started. And maybe we say it started a little earlier in time, like when Jesus called the disciples. And that's the first time there was a group of people following Jesus. That broad concept might be how you define the church. Maybe we put it a little later in time than Pentecost, at some uncertain point at which the first congregation or congregations formed. If your sense of the church is a web of interconnected communities as such, maybe it's then. But it could be even later than that. If you hold to some strict theological claims as the definition of the church, we could go as late as the 4th century when the Nicene and a few other councils determined who among those self-proclaimed Jesus-following communities were included if we have to draw a boundary about you know, sort of legal, technical ways to say who is Christian and who is not. The creeds drew those boundaries. I suspect some preachers, or anyone else thinking about this, may just conclude that because you can't really pick one day, maybe we just leave the question unanswered. But for the sake of argument, let's say we do answer it, or at least we're going to try. We might answer it something like this. The church, in its broad sense, is a collection of interrelated individuals and communities who follow Christ as guided by the Holy Spirit. Well, the disciples were a community there already. They were already followers of Christ, and others were too. And the Holy Spirit had been at work in the world, but Pentecost was the day in which all of those ideas aligned, and then they stayed aligned from then on. Now, three times in this last month here, we considered the idea, the same idea from a few different angles, that we can be certain about that which God promises, even if there are things God is up to out in the world at other times and places with other people that we can't be so certain about, that we couldn't predict. And we get something like that when we define the church. As wild as that idea is, that the church could have started as late as the fourth century, as wild as that sounds, it has a bit of appeal, at least for me. Well, technically, we maybe have to put it at where those ideas were first decided, proclaimed, that sort of thing, maybe some church father along the way. But whenever there's been outside pressure, usually political pressure, that forces the church to define itself, because those outside pressures demanded a clear line be drawn, who is and who is not Christian, for whatever their purposes were, then those lines have historically been drawn roughly, if not exactly, by using the beliefs of the ecumenical creeds, the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed in particular. If you believe all those things, Christian. If you don't, maybe not. In settings where no such definition is required, like here in the United States, the lines get blurry and they get drawn further out so that we have a half dozen or so influential, at least modestly, but though some majorly influential, we could say denominations, we could say religious traditions, in this country alone that self-identify as Christian, though they do not meet the definition prescribed by the ecumenical creeds. So to my mind, 
it's here that this principle comes to play again. The creeds are so integrally tied to Scripture that they are the direct result of what God has made certain. We can safely say whichever group is within those bounds is part of the church. Its members are Christians. I have a harder time saying, with that level of confidence anyway, who is out. Because while I think the idea of some later prophet coming along and contradicting the church, the scriptures, even Jesus directly, that's not something we should be endorsing. I also don't think God abandons people because they happen to be born into a family that happens to join a congregation that happens to be, uh, what, Mormon or Jehovah's Witness or Christian Scientist or Unitarian or... You get the idea. To the extent that the Holy Spirit moves in and through people outside the bounds of the ecumenical creeds, and to the extent that they follow Jesus' teachings and trust in the salvation afforded them by faith through grace, well, then they each meet that broad definition of the church, the kind of definition that would also say that today, Pentecost is the birthday of the church. So happy birthday. <laughs> the Holy Spirit descended on a diverse group of local Judean, Galilean, and disparate, like had been scattered to other countries, Jewish people. The first signs were physically visible, tongues of flames and audible cross-lingual interactions. People who did not speak the same languages as one another could all of a sudden understand the apostles and their proclamation. So we have the cynics there who were not overtaken. They hear the apostles probably plainly. There's, there's no indication that this sounded like gibberish or the language of the angels or anything like that. It was just the languages that people also spoke. And they also hear the crowds believe that they can understand the apostles. Those cynics hear the apostles speaking languages they don't understand, and they see the crowds believing they do understand. So the cynics don't think that communication is really happening. They don't really understand each other. So they accuse the listeners, at least, maybe the apostles too, of being drunk. Because, of course, a drunk person can hear some indiscernible foreign language and in their newly found confidence believe that they can understand that foreign language, even if they have no idea. Now, I have often joked that Peter's defense is a little silly. You know, he says they can't be drunk. It's only 9 a.m. That is not proof, after all, though. Although someone drunk at 9 a.m. is probably not drunk already, but rather still drunk. However, in seriousness, I think this is more likely a remark on the fact that in this ancient culture, like many ancient cultures, and in fact most cultures before the advent of modern water treatment and processing, so not that long ago, People would drink alcohol throughout the day, as it was often the safest and probably tastiest thing available to drink. Even though the ABV or proof of those drinks would be relatively low, it probably was some risk that you might get tipsy if you found yourself thirsty enough and having not eaten enough. And I suspect that risk of accidental intoxication was just not really a risk in the early morning. Okay, well, it's past 9 a.m. here, and we have a few ideas about how we might define the church. One of them says today is the church's birthday, and 
The first thing that happened was people who normally would not or could not, say because of geographic distance, maybe linguistic barriers, those people normally could not come together as one community, and yet here they are. The start of the church is drawing community together across those lines. So whether we look at those bold lines drawn around the church by the creed, defining who is in and who is out, or we draw a wide circle with fuzzy lines open to the possibility of God working through those unexpected, unpromised, uncertain people and places, the through line in those definitions of the church, at least from Pentecost moving forward, included this detail. We are a community which transcends all human barriers. We are in a shared communion with people across time and space. We as a church speak virtually every language that is or has been spoken on earth. At least we did at the time it was spoken. We are, if it was spoken after, <laughs> you know, around 33 AD, we are present to some degree in virtually every nation on earth. Our community includes members of every race, every ethnicity, every age. The gospel is formed to fit every cultural and political persuasion, every socioeconomic class. That is what you are a part of, what we together are a part of, an interconnected web of congregations, denominations, church traditions, all the way up out to the whole of God's church in many and varied forms over time and place. Now, does that make us seem smaller? Like we're just one little congregation in a sea of thousands. Or does it make us seem bigger as one piece of a much larger whole? Well, let's consider this one last observation. When Jesus walked the earth, he spoke with authority. He revealed the nature of God, and by extension, human nature and creation as a whole. He healed people, fed people, forgave people, and he gave of himself for others. It was a spectacular sort of ministry, the kind that never had and never has since been rivaled, but almost. While others helped during that time, it wasn't until after the ascension on Pentecost that Christ's ministry was really handed off and spread out. Peter and the rest of the apostles, Paul with Barnabas and a few others, took on the Holy Spirit in a way that was also spectacular. Not one of them could rival Jesus, especially not alone, of course, but several accounts of miracles in Acts were direct parallels of miracles Jesus had performed. Together, these dozen or so men did the sort of things Jesus did, spoke with authority, revealed God, healed, fed, forgave, and gave up their lives for others. Together, as the body of Christ, they kept Christ's ministry going through the Holy Spirit. And soon enough, there were congregations planted which grew quickly because of this radical acceptance and almost reckless charity. Just one example of each real quick. Women and slaves and eunuchs were welcomed into positions of authority and respect when most religious circles, or any other circles for that matter, would not have welcomed them so. At the same time, in a culture which put the utmost importance on being buried in the ground after you died, even though many, if not most, could not afford the land upon which to be buried, 
the church made accommodations for anyone who joined, regardless of their resources, whether they could afford it or not, to be buried properly. The church didn't stop there, though. We grew and grew across those boundaries. We laid the foundations for much of modern life by building so many schools and universities and hospitals and, and more. Today, the church directly or through the fruits of those labors has led to untold healing through health care. The blind are given sight every day now. People who are hungry, by their own fault or not, are fed. God is revealed over and over every day by the actions done by the church. Within the church, we learn about God and we find forgiveness. Christ's ministry maybe took a pause for those three days in the grave and the ten days between Ascension and Pentecost, but that's only maybe 13 days off in a nearly 2,000-year continuous ministry, which reveals God, speaks with authority, feeds, forgives, heals people, all with the knowledge that this is ultimately not for It's not for we who give or do the work, but it's for the sake of glorifying God and for the love of neighbor. As spectacular as Christ's ministry was, as we find it in the Gospels, it is just about as spectacular today. And of the two billion people alive chipping in, you are one of them with your own part to play, your own gifts to share, your own contribution to the whole. You are the church. We are the church together. Through the Holy Spirit, with God's help, called by Christ, what we do is spectacular. Amen.